This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to The Daisy Cousins Show. I'm Daisy Cousins, and I'm thrilled to be right here on ADH-TV for your viewing pleasure every week, twice a week, and boy, do we have a bumper show for you this evening. Tonight on the program, I'm joined by podcaster, former Navy intelligence officer and international commentator Jack Posobiec to talk us through the latest in the ever-increasing global conflicts we are seeing right now, and federal LNP Senator Jared Rennick to analyse the latest reasons why the Labor federal government is certainly down in the dumps. But first... The global climate hasn't been this hot for a long, long time. And no, I'm not talking about quote-unquote global warming. The ceasefire in the Israel-Palestine conflict is well and truly over, with the Israeli Defense Force, or IDF, continuing to launch strikes on Gaza in order to defeat the Islamic terrorist group Hamas. Some of the latest news to come out of the conflict is that according to a leaked report from an off-the-record briefing for foreign journalists, Israel believes 5,000 of, of the roughly 15,000 casualties reported by Hamas in Gaza were terrorists, not civilians. With this, if true, is an historically low ratio of civilian to fighter deaths, as explained by Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Conricus on CNN. Yeah, I can confirm the report, uh, and I can say that uh, if that is true, and I think that our numbers will um, be corroborated if you compare though that ratio to any other conflict in urban terrain between a military and a terrorist organization using civilians as their human shield and embedded in the civilian population, you will find that that ratio is tremendous, tremendously positive and perhaps unique in the world. He also confirmed, again, that Israel is going to great lengths to avoid civilian casualties. I understand that there are civilian casualties and I understand that footage and coverage goes towards emotions uh, and to, to cover those civilian casualties. But what I want to say is that we will get those figures out and they will be official and on record by the IDF with the okay. name behind it. And then we will be able to say uh, and to back up afterwards with names and numbers that we are indeed targeting the terrorists. We are not after the civilians and we're going into great efforts in order to keep it that way. Not to mention the increasing global out outrage about the scale and the cruelty of the sexual attacks used by Hamas terrorists on Israeli women during the October 7th massacre. But the conflict in the Middle East is not the only war on the block, so to speak. Step sideways to Europe and you'll find the Russia-Ukraine war still going strong as it's about to enter its third year. Labelled a proxy war by some, the conflict has been propped up and prolonged by billions of dollars of foreign aid to Ukraine from countries like Australia and, of course, the USA. The latest on that front is that the White House has implored Congress to approve even more funding for the war in Europe to the tune of about 61 billion US dollars. 
as part of an approximately 105 billion US dollar package that would also include funding for Israel's war against Hamas, US allies in the Pacific, and money to house and process illegal immigrants along the Mexican border. But dissatisfied with the exclusion of the immigration reforms they demanded as part of that package, Republican senators voted on Wednesday to block the aid. And in fact, no extra funding has been approved for Ukraine since the Republicans took control of the House in 2022. And Speaker Mike Johnson has made it clear any new funding for Ukraine is dependent on the Republicans' demands being met for stronger controls at the U.S. southern border. He tweeted, the Biden administration has failed to substantively address any of my conference's legitimate concerns about the lack of a clear strategy in Ukraine, a path to resolving the conflict, or a plan for adequately ensuring accountability for aid provided by American taxpayers. Meanwhile, the administration is continually ignoring the catastrophe at our own border. House Republicans have resolved that any national security supplemental package must begin with our own border. We believe both issues can be agreed upon if Senate Democrats and the White House will negotiate reasonably. Now, needless to say, this attitude angers the warmongering neo-libs within the Democratic Party, as revealed by National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan at a press conference. I want to ask a question about Ukraine. Are you saying that any member of Congress who votes against aid to Ukraine is voting for Putin? I believe that any member of Congress who does not support funding for Ukraine is voting for an outcome that will make it easier for Putin to prevail. That is, a vote against supporting Ukraine is a vote to improve Putin's strategic position. That's just an inescapable reality. That's not speaking to someone's motive, why they chose to vote against it. That's just speaking to the outcome of their vote. A vote against supplemental funding for Ukraine will hurt Ukraine and help Russia. It will hurt democracy and help dictators. Got that, Republicans? If you vote against throwing more money to prolong a fruitless conflict in Europe that's about as far removed from the USA as possible, you're hurting democracy. Such hyperbole. Adding to global tensions is, of course, the Chinese Communist Party, which teases continuously on the brink of launching military action to forcibly unify Taiwan with mainland China, as well as continued attempts to destabilize the West through cyber attacks and online espionage. And that's before you get to the rise of BRICS. That is the acronym for the new alliance between Brazil, Russia, Indonesia, China, and South Africa, as well as others, which seeks to challenge Western influence on global markets through trade and economic expansion. Now, as we've seen, these destabilizing global forces have caused a lot of civil unrest in Western countries over the past few months, especially the conflict in Gaza, which has unleashed a wave of global anti-Semitism not seen since the rise of the Nazis in the early 20th century. To cite just one example, we all remember this protest outside the Sydney Opera House in the wake of the October 7th attack. There's this kind of delusional misinformation being spread by white leftists on social media, which only serves to inflame tensions. Hamas is a political and military resistance group in Gaza, and they have been falsely labeled as a terrorist group. Hamas is an organization that fights for the liberation of the Palestinian people. They are literally fighting against colonialism and white supremacy. If it was me, I'd be part of Hamas too. I mean, at the very least, you'd have to call Black Lives Matter a terrorist organization, right? But look, the interesting thing about all of this is that during this rise in anti-Semitism perpetuated by Islamists and their Western sympathizers, like that lady on social media, right-wing populism had two massive wins. First, the new libertarian Argentinian president Javier Malay, who is adamantly pro-Israel, 
And then in the Netherlands, when longtime politician and nationalist populist Gerd Wilders won the recent Dutch election. He has long been outspoken on mass Muslim immigration in Europe, and in the wake of his victory, this speech went viral. Voorzitter, ten slotte heb ik nog een boodschap aan al die moslims in Nederland die onze vrijheid, onze democratie en onze kernwaarden niet respecteren. Die de regels van de Koran belangrijker vinden dan onze seculiere wet. Considering the diabolical behavior of the radical Islamists of Hamas on October 7th, not to mention the disgusting rhetoric of pro-Hamas protesters around the Western world, is it any wonder support for Gert Wilders surged? So let's assess the situation. War in Gaza, war in Ukraine, potential war in Taiwan, a rise in anti-Semitism, global civil unrest, and fractures within politics the likes of which haven't been seen well since the Second World War. With that in mind, I'm reminded of this tweet posted in October by social media commentator Keemstar. World War I started in 1914. World War I was only called World War I first in 1939. World War II started in 1939. World War II was only called World War II first in 1941. Has World War III already started? That is indeed the question. Joining me to hopefully answer that question and more is podcaster, senior editor of Human Events, former Navy intelligence officer and international commentary sensation, the one and only Jack Posobiec. Jack Posobiec, it is fantastic to have you here. How are you this evening? Daisy, I am absolutely fantastic. You know, you, we're going into the Christmas season here. We've got a ton going on. It's gala season in uh, in the United States. So, you know, we've got a lot of those coming up. We're going to be going to a gala here on Saturday night in New York City with President Trump. Uh, he has just announced that he's going to be attending as well. Uh, so, you know, I had, to, I had to call, you know, and, and it's funny because so we do, we do the galas, but it's always kind of gala season in, in December, Christmas galas. And, um, you know, sometimes we've done Mar-a-Lago, we've done other places. And then there's the New York one, and we've done it last year. And we just got back from Japan. Mm. Um, we were doing CPAC Japan, and so it's been it's been a whirlwind of travel. We took kids there as well. So, you know, that's just always fun, bringing yeah. kids uh, on a trans-Pacific flight like that. <laughs> and then, and I turned it to my wife, Tainte, and I said, do you, so do you want to go up to the New York gala on Saturday? She said, boy, that's, you know, I, I think I could use a weekend to rest at some point before the holiday hits. Um, and I said, well, here's the thing. President Trump's going to be there. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, your presence is requested. So now we're all going. Of course. Of, of course. When President Trump requests your presence, then you, you, you absolutely do not turn it down. How exciting. I'm so jealous. Oh, my God. I would love to go to a gala dinner <laughs> with President Trump. That sounds amazing. Come. Come over. Hop a plane. I, 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 if, look, if, if I can find a cheap flight, I'll be there in a second. Seriously, because that sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> now, Jack, look. Well, if, not, if not this one, we'll get you, we'll get you in uh, next year after uh, Trump is re-elected. And the, and the great victory gala for next December. You know, you know, I would I would die a happy woman if you could get me into that victory gala for next December, Jack. So I'm, I might just hold you to that. I might just hold you to that. <laughs> <laughs> now, look, Jack, the world is in a bit of a state at the moment, as we know. I mean, first there was Ukraine and Russia, then Israel and Palestine. And of course, the West has been teetering on the brink of military conflict with China for years. Are we being led down the garden path to World War Three? do you think? Well, look, I, you know, and I say this as someone who is a voracious reader of John Mearsheimer, Professor Mearsheimer and his work. Uh, this was the man who predicted the Ukraine war and predicted how it would play out that uh, NATO and the United States were pushing and pushing and pushing further into Ukraine. And while in the in the West, and especially within Washington, D.C., I remember having served in the intelligence community, you know, we always said everything NATO does is benign. Everything that we do is is actually uh, beneficial, where we are a benign hegemon, benign hegemon. This is the theory, defensive alliance, defensive alliance. 
But it turns out the Russians didn't quite see it that way. And it turns out that um, they didn't agree. And no matter how many times the U.S. State Department decided to tell um, uh, Sergei Lavrov or Vladimir Putin that uh, that NATO certainly didn't have any plans to attack Russia, that he simply didn't agree. And then he looked at NATO, what NATO did in Libya, what looked at, looked at the Afghanistan, looked at Syria, and decided that he didn't want NATO on his border like that. And unfortunately, uh, for Ukraine and for all of their warnings, they did not heed anything that Putin was saying. And they said, well, we are going to go ahead and get in bed with the West and go and push all of this. And Mearsheimer, I believe correctly, and I think we, as, as history is borne out, correctly pointed out that it was those decisions that led Ukraine down this primrose path of thinking that they could have their cake and eat it too, that they didn't need to worry about the warnings from Russia that Putin was, um, you know, that he was, he was, um, he was bluffing, that it was all a big bluff, that nothing would ever come of this. Well, it turns out that it wasn't a bluff. And it turns out mm -hmm. that Russia takes their national security, their border security incredibly strongly, probably much more than anybody else in the West. And so um, they did, obviously, in February of 2022, conduct their invasion in in order to uh, get Kiev and get Zelensky to drop this bid for NATO membership because they didn't want NATO bases along Russian borders. We're told that in March of 2022, by the way, I'm getting to answer your question. I know I'm going down a long road, but I'm <laughs> no, going to get no, to answer no, your no, question. No, 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 no. And we're told it. that in March of 2022, that Boris Johnson, came over from the UK to visit Kiev. Now, around this time period, and we know this from, and you mentioned Israel-Palestine, mm. um, Naftali Bennett, the, the then prime minister of Israel before Net, uh, Bibi Netanyahu came back to power, Naftali Bennett was acting as the go-between between, between Zelensky and Putin. He would fly mm. to uh, Istanbul. He would meet with the, the interlocutors for the Ukrainians. He would go to Moscow. He would talk to Putin. He would talk to Zelensky. And he said that there was a peace deal in the works that basically a draft had even been signed off on this already, instituting a peace between Ukraine and Russia, essentially a ceasefire, yeah. saying, look, all we want you to do is drop the bid for NATO and then take these provinces, these breakaway provinces, Crimea, uh, Donetsk, and Lugansk, uh, the three, by the way, that Nikki Haley was not able to uh, name <laughs> on the debate stage last night, uh, which is just another funny thing to begin with. Um, and to uh, Russia has also annexed Zaporizhia and Kherson provinces, but these are, these are the really the three where the main fighting is currently. And so... It was Boris Johnson and the West carrying out the West's uh, wishes and, and to say, no, tear up that peace agreement, continue and extend a much larger war with Russia. That is what has occurred. So Putin had originally sent in, and the Kremlin had sent in about 150, 160,000 troops. Mm. Then they began a first wave of mobilization after that peace deal was torn up, drawing up another 300,000 troops. Now we're told that as many as potentially 700,000 troops stand at the ready uh, in order to be able to conduct further operations into Ukraine at this very moment. Oh and as goodness. obviously in Ukraine, they're getting into the winter months, they're getting into that that cold tundra. Uh, people, I remember last year, were saying that, oh, uh, you know, Russia's going to have a lot of trouble. I, said, I think the Russians know how to fight in winter. Yeah. Uh, they're the <laughs> Russians after all. This is kind of what they do. They're, they're somewhat familiar with this. Napoleon found that out, by the way. Mm. Um, that this uh, this situation has been completely mismanaged to the point where now there's open political warfare within Kiev, to, some of which has turned into assassinations we've seen mm. of high-level individuals, high-level aides, high-level politicians, uh, breakaway politicians in Russia have been assassinated by... What are, we are told, potentially Ukrainian forces, uh, pipelines, obviously from Nord Stream 2 to the Baltic Stream pipeline have been blown up and our Balt connector have been blown up. Mm. And so this situation has completely gone off the rails. Mm. And in Washington, D.C., you hear people saying, we just need to send more money. We just need to send more troops. We just need to send more weapons. Then we hear the same thing in Israel. We said, we're going to keep going. We're going to push harder. We're going to allow, allow this to go. And so we it's, it's sort of a sort of a, a dual track um, situation where you have so many people calling for complete uh, warfare and you have other people, a very small minority, but it is there in DC and I, I would say it's growing, that of people saying, 
If this escalates further, either of these escalates further, you're now looking at a one, two, and then you mentioned China, three, a potential three-front global conflict. And John Mearsheimer has described this as what I call Mearsheimer's warning, a potential three-front global conflict that the United States and its allies would find itself in. Uh, Obviously, anything to do, and I I just mentioned I was there in uh, in Tokyo a couple Mm. of days ago giving a speech um, about Taiwan and the security situation. Now, Currently, we haven't seen, and I would say as present, we do not see any buildup for any mass mobilization or mass invasion of Taiwan. Mm. But at the same time, I would always point, I would also point out that you would not need a mass mobilization or invasion of Taiwan. You would need a blockade, which of course the People's Liberation Army Navy would be able to, uh, would be able to execute very swiftly, uh, essentially saying area denial and then block off and choke off Taiwan mm. from the prospect of connection with the mainland and really isolate them from any international trade. We would also see, uh, looking at this today, of course, um, in the United States, we were remembering Pearl Harbor. And so um, the understanding that any situation involving a Taiwan uh, kinetic scenario mm. with uh, with between China and the United States, I've, and I've said this many times, I'll say it again here, it would lead to the loss of at least one aircraft carrier. Mm. Um, we've seen these drone swarms used to great effect from Iran and uh, Russia's using them now on the battlefield in Ukraine. Those have direct implications for anti-carrier strategies in the Taiwan Strait. Mm. And look, basically it works like this. Um, U.S. anti-aircraft and really anti-air defenses are designed around missiles or designed around jets. They're not designed around having an entire swarm of drones because this is select targeting. Of course. They're not designed to target an entire swarm all at once. So sure, can they get some of the drones down? Maybe, but Mm. will they get all of them? Probably not. Mm. Uh, That means one aircraft carrier, that's 5,000 American sailors, uh, 5,000 lives that could be dead at the bottom of the Taiwan Strait in any scenario. And this is why this is such a devastating scenario for Americans, not only just for the U.S. Navy, but also for international security, which which I, I would hope that cooler heads both in the West and the CCP mm. would prevail. But of course, in many ways, the ball is in Xi Jinping's court. Oh, my God, what a, what a time to be alive, Jack. That all sounds um, completely terrifying, but I'm, I'm, I'm inclined to agree. I mean, we've, I mentioned in my editorial that um, the war in Ukraine has just been prolonged and propped up by money, not, not just from America, but from Australia. I mean, we've been shelling out hundreds of millions of Australian dollars worth of aid to Ukraine to prop up and prolong this war, which I, I think I agree with you is, is a proxy war. But thank you. Um, thank you so much for that analysis. Um, I hope certainly that, that cooler heads absolutely um, prevail. Um, now, you mentioned, speaking of foreign policy, uh, the Republican debate recently. The fourth Republican primary debate did go ahead this week, and Vivek Ramaswamy came out swinging against Chris Christie and Nikki Haley over their so-called foreign policy experience. They're both warmongers. We know this. Um, do you think Ramaswamy was impactful enough to put himself back in this race? Because I'm inclined to think a lot of Americans nowadays might agree with him on a sort of less trigger-happy warmongering stance. Well, I think that's an interesting question. It's an insightful question, and it's really a layered question because uh, there's the question of did Vivek Ramaswamy have a standout performance at this debate? He certainly did, and I think there's certainly many people in the American public that are going to gravitate towards the things that he said. Obviously, many of the statements that he made, not just on the issue of foreign policy, where he is so independent, really, of the uh, the Chris Christie's and the Nikki Haley's and the Ron DeSantis's, this more, uh, more I, I guess I would say, traditionalist GOP model versus a, a more brash, uh, younger, but also, in a sense, classical model yeah. of, of GOP realism, of, of understanding that um, rather than seeking, as we said before, this global hegemony uh, that the United States could be a great power, could be interested in balance of power politics, and understanding its role in the world as well as in, within the Western Hemisphere should be the primary focus. Uh, this is something, by the way, that Donald Trump has obviously also spoken about many, many times. Mm. And that predominantly the U.S.'s role in other parts of the world should be focused more on trade and diplomacy. 
that being said, um, there's also you know the angle of why are Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis staying in this race when none of them really have any of these these polling numbers that are breaking out? Uh, it's because they're propped up by donors, whereas Vivek, of course, is propped up by himself. So he's yeah. going for those small dollar donors in many cases. He's building out a wide popular base. But Nikki Haley's donors, by the way, mm. they don't care. They don't care what she said. They don't care how bad she looked when she couldn't answer that question about the three Ukrainian provinces um, that they were focused on. She didn't really even give any solid foreign policy examples, mm. none whatsoever, other than these, these sort of blatant, very glib, by the way, very glib answers about, oh, the United States must stand for resolve. Well, what is resolve? How do you measure resolve? Mm. You know, these, these, these various you know, nebulous abstract concepts. Whereas Vivek Ramaswamy, you know, obviously is, is very well read on, on a variety of subjects, has looked into these things and has come, come back with complex answers to them and pragmatic answers, as opposed to sort of your, your classical rhetoric of the United States must uh, invade and, and intervene where, wherever, wherever spread it must be. Spread democracy around the world. As far as being able to break out. Yeah, spread democracy, right. Mm. As far as being able to break out into the, into the primary, though, um, I think, quite frankly, that Donald Trump's um, pervasive, not only name ID, but his fight, his struggle, his just uh, really cinematic, I would say cinematic struggle now against the, so many forces in the United States and abroad, these globalist forces that he is up against, whether you're looking at him in the courtroom, whether you're seeing him on uh, in a town hall saying that he'd, uh, you know, he'd, he wouldn't want to be a dictator, except maybe mm. for one day. It, it's creating <laughs> this sort of very, he's using that imagery, he's using those theatrics, he's creating a setup that I think Americans who are so inclined to think in terms of movies are going to want to see through. And there's this general sense as well that Donald Trump has unfinished business from his original term. Uh, he was prevented from having a second term. We are mm. currently in an interregnum. And, and then more, more concretely, that the current crop of issues that are facing the United States, that are facing the West, when you look in terms of us being on the brink of World War III, mm. you need someone who has a capricious record as a peacemaker to come into power. Donald Trump was that in spades. And all he has to do is really say, things were better under me than they are under Joe Biden. That's going to be a huge winning record for so many Americans. Now, um, does that mean that Vivek doesn't have a place either in a cabinet or some future position? We'll see. Um, there's There's been a sort of shadow campaign to uh, to see if Vivek would be interested in running for Senate, by the way. So he's in the, oh, wow. in the state of Ohio, uh, which is the same state that uh, J.D. Vance just became a senator in last cycle. Mm. And there is currently an open Senate race in the coming up this year or coming up in 2024, I should say. And so there's been some talk about would he switch over because since they're both federal races, the, his campaign would essentially be able to switch over. It doesn't seem like that's going to happen at this point, though. Mm. Uh, it seems like whatever he's destined for will probably have some kind of national um, national prevalence. And um, yeah, I don't quite know what that is. Personally, I'm, I, I'm, I don't know if Vivek himself knows, but I do think that we are going to be hearing a lot more, whatever it is, we're yeah. going to be hearing a lot more from him, not only in the next couple of years, uh, if Trump wins again, which I think he will, um, certainly he'll, Vivek will have a role to play in that movement. Mm. Well, I, I certainly hope so, because I mean, I'm a big fan of Vivek. I think he's he's such a ref refreshing voice to hear. And he, he sticks it to those aging neocons. I hate to call them that, but they are. You know, it's, it's great. <laughs> it's great to see him up there putting his stake in the ground. Um, now, Jack. Well, it's uh, it's, it's kind of yeah. like having it's kind of like having, you know, and I, 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 I just have to say it. Or I have to yeah. say it. There, there is a. There is a generational gap yeah. between the type of conversation. So you've got go. So Chris Christie and Nikki Haley, they're both baby boomer era. I think mm. Chris Christie might be on the on the the older edge of the gen of the Gen Xers. Yeah. Um, Ron DeSantis is a Gen Xer, but he sort of politically codes in more of that baby boomer kind of model. Mm. Um, but Vivek Ramaswamy is is a millennial. Yeah. Uh, this is a guy who is did not come up in that era. And so mm -hmm. anyone who's read Neil uh, Strauss Howe, The Fourth Turning, and Generation Theory um, would understand that the people who 
people who form their worldview in their formative years, um, typically base their worldview around the world as it is when they are younger. Mm. So if you're someone who grew up in the 50s, the 60s, even even really the early 70s in the West, things were good. Uh, There was widespread prosperity. Things were great. And so you have this view that the world is always like that. And so when things change, um, and it's not the 1980s anymore, suddenly you're you're kind of confused at why Mm. people don't agree with you. And so sure, during that that time, frame, the United States could easily afford to have this incredibly strong foreign policy, um, stronger open borders, um, prosperity in towns, crime wasn't as bad, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Certainly in the 1990s, crime wasn't as bad. Mm. Then with Vivek, he came of age during, let's, I mean, let's go through it, just like other millennials in the U.S., uh, I guess myself included as sort of an elder millennial, um, I say centennial, um, that... (laughs) You know, because look, I grew up before the internet, so I say centennial, okay? Yeah. Um, If you grew up with the internet, you're a millennial. But if you grew up before pervasive digital technology, there's something a little bit different. There is a huge generation gap there. And I refuse to say that those are the same thing, even though the the Fed likes to lump us all together. So... (laughs) You, if you grew up, if you if you can remember 9-11, yeah. right, that's another key piece of it. You remember 9-11, then the Iraq war, then the financial crisis financial hits crisis, yeah. just as you're getting into the, the job market. Mm. Suddenly you're in shock because um, you've taken on all this student debt. No, not me, but a lot of millennials. You've taken on all this student debt and you're wondering how you're ever going to pay it off. Now you can't get a job mm. that services that debt. So your debt is growing because you can barely even keep up with the interest payments on Mm. it. And you've got this entire depressed generation of millennials that are holding like Thanksgiving parties and running around calling themselves dinks um, (laughs) rather than actually form (laughs) families or form a lasting future. Mm. And, And I guess I would say that you know, it's it's one. It, it would be easy for me to sit here and just just sort of mock them. And, and, and to be fair, a lot of it is 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 right for mockery. Yeah, but we funny. should also understand the. It, it, it is. It is. No. But they, we should also understand. I think there are there are strong economic forces that have driven millennials to that. Very and so when so. you look at a Vivek, he's also responding to those social, economic, and political forces that hit during his formative years that are just fundamentally different than those of the older generation. And I think that's why he looks out at a foreign policy and instead of saying, what should the United States be doing? Mm. You know, he doesn't look at it necessarily as a moral question. He looks at it in terms of more of a pragmatic question as to what can we afford? How many people should we commit to something? What is the desired end state? And you do, by the way, also see this same vein Mm. uh, being pushed through a lot of the new Gen X commentariat that's coming online right now. Uh, This is, no, so Elon Musk, Gen X, Glenn Greenwald, Gen X, Joe Rogan, Gen X, Tucker Carlson, Gen X. You can go down the list. There's all these Gen Xers, uh, David Sachs, Mm. who are kind of coming online in a new way. And this is typically your, you know, this is traditionally your nomad generation, your generation of, uh, you know, oh, we just want to be left alone. We want to go do our thing, (laughs) et cetera, et cetera. But now they're, now they're suddenly getting engaged more because I think they've realized that there's there's sort of these baby boomer moralists and then woke millennial crusaders and who are forming alliances in many ways. Yes. And and Gen Z is playing into that as well. That the Gen Xers are kind of getting squeezed out. So finally, because so many people are breathing down their necks, now they're finally coming to the fore. And this, of course, brings you to Elon Musk. And that's why he's finally making moves the way that he is that I've seen really been some of the most impactful ones mm. that we've seen anywhere. And, and I'd love to love to talk about um, Elon. I'm so pleased that you mentioned him because he's a massive topic at the moment. He's been a massive topic, for, you know, for being an entrepreneur and for being wonderful. Then, of course, he brought X, he bought X, formerly known as Twitter, last year, which was, I mean, we all celebrated that. That was phenomenal. But something um, quite interesting has is actually un- unfolding now as, as we speak. Um, there is a, a, an implication, is there not, Jack? that Elon might allow the one and only Alex Jones back onto X. Can you can you tell us about that? What's the story there? 
Sure. So um, just as we went, basically, as we were getting connected for the interview here mm. today, um, I saw on X that Elon, as he does, just posted a flurry of tweets and interactions um, with with Ian Miles Chong, who I know, and a few other individuals, um, the quartering, just uh, you know, some of the biggest accounts. Where So basically, the, all this started because Tucker Carlson is interviewing Alex Jones. It's a pre-recorded interview, and it's going to be airing later tonight as we yeah. tape this. Then Alex Jones went and recorded a separate message to Elon and posted it to his wife's Twitter account because she's not banned. So Erica... So he put it up there and he basically says in the video, Elon, I hope you watch my interview with Tucker tonight. I know you watch Tucker. <laughs> I think it'd be really great if you watch this episode with Tucker, which will be premiering exclusively on X. Now, of course, the implication being that, you know, that Alex here has been banned. It was banned five years ago oh, God, on Twitter 1.0 before, before he did indeed. Um, and so Elon then responds to that saying, I will hear him out. Mm. And many other people have been saying this would be a perfect opportunity to go and look at the situation, um, look at the reasoning behind Alex's original suspension and make a new determination as to whether or not he should come back. So Elon has said, if Alex were to come back, because X is attempting to become the digital public commons, which of course it is, mm. That he would, of course, fall under the same guidelines as everybody else. He could be community noted. He could be, uh, he could be, you know, have have tweets taken down. He could have things suspended, et cetera, et cetera. But although I noticed that uh, more and more, or or I would even say less and less, actually, less and less tweets I've seen suspended just in the past couple of months, because it used to be that you could get, you, sure, you'll get community noted, but stuff won't get taken down yeah, the way exactly. that it used to on Twitter. So now yeah. we're in this situation where. You know, it, it feels like it's humming along. And, and I think just in general, just in general, we in the West and, and really in the Anglosphere, we're starting to talk more freely mm. than we have in the years prior. And there's no one single event that you can point to other than the 44 billion US dollar purchase of Twitter by Elon Musk that set all this into motion because him doing that created a new mainstream platform mm. that did finally allow, or I should say re-allow, freedom of speech. And because of that, it set a domino effect in motion to the point where uh, you can go on X right now and find Elon Musk, the richest man in the world, having conversations about the battlefront in Ukraine, which by the way, I'm sure Elon could name three provinces off the yeah. top of his head because he's constantly having conversations with people about this. Mm. Um, and they're and they're going back and you'll get into arguments over what the real line of contact is, et cetera, et cetera. And so this has become a... A chain reaction. It set off a chain reaction for these conversations and for these. Um, you know, I, mm. I I I struggle to say a rightward shift. Right? People want to say it's a rightward shift, and in a sense, it is. But that's only because things had gone so far to the left. To the left, yeah. And because I agree. the left had a, had a had a total monopoly on not only the not only the institutions, but also the distribution networks of information. So if you control distribution networks of information, you control the pipelines, you mm -hmm. control the flow, now you control everything. Yeah. This is how things were up until Elon purchased X. But now that he has it, it is one of the largest distribution networks, decentralized distribution networks in the world for the ability for, it's, it's basically sort of the world's open sandbox uh, group chat. It's just a mm. global group chat that everybody can be involved in at any time. And so you, and you can block people and you can mute people. I certainly block a lot of people. Yes. A lot Some, of people have me blocked too. Sometimes you gotta have, um, you gotta block sometimes. <laughs> and so, and so the, the, the real glory of it is that it is the one place where you can just interact with anybody on the entire planet instantaneously. Yeah. And the reason that is so powerful is because it disintermediates everything else that mm -hmm. we have out there. Yeah. Uh, I, I wrote a book in 2017 about Trump's victory, his original victory. And I said, 
It was Trump's embrace of Twitter that brought him to the forefront, just like in American history, we had FDR utilized radio in the 1930s when it first came out, JFK with television in the 1960s, and then Donald Trump with social media in 2016. You cannot separate those. Mm -hmm. And you know, of course, nobody likes to give him credit for this, but if you look at it in terms of a communications device, because it is interactive, it is instantaneous, it is the new media. I mean, we just don't even have any, what was radio before radio? What was TV before TV? What was social media before social media? It Definitely. is something fundamentally new and something fundamentally different. It is not, uh, it is, you know, Henry Ford once had that comment about, um, you know, well, if I if I asked my customers what they would have wanted before I designed the first car, he said, he said, if I asked my customers what they would have wanted, they would have said a faster horse. Yeah, right. So, exactly. so when you're creating something, when something you're creating something brand new, totally new, you can't compare it to anything, right? You can't no. compare it to anything that came before. No, which and is- so that's what. Twitter has been. Yeah. And I think that I think the world is finally starting to catch up to that. I, th- I think I think so too. And I, I think it was just wonderfully serendipitous that Elon stepped in when he did because he recognized a problem. He recognized exactly what you just outlined, which is that the channels of communication were just strangled by the left and thought, no, Twitter is the public square. It's been turned into something else. I want to bring it back uh, to what it was. And you're right, Trump Trump embraced that and, and more power to him for it. Jack Pasovic. Um, you are so phenomenal. Um, your analysis of these world issues is absolutely second to none. Thank you so much for coming on the program this evening and have a wonderfully merry, lovely, happy, healthy, holy Christmas. <laughs> Amen. Merry Christmas, Daisy. Well, Christmas is indeed just around the corner, and while it remains my absolute favorite time of year, it's not going it's going to be a lot harder for families this year to enjoy the Christmas spirit. Massive inflation has been burning a hole in family budgets, not to mention the 13 interest rate rises since May 2022. Mercifully, the Reserve Bank abstained from hitting Australians with a 14th rate rise on Tuesday, which will come as an immense relief to so many of us. Now, while inflation has thankfully dipped a bit over the last few months, it still remains stubbornly too high and on the watch of the Anthony Anthony Albanese Labor government. And while I have said many times and will continue to say that this bout of inflation is in large part very much the fault of the previous coalition federal government for continuing to capitulate to the COVID panic and money demands of the state governments, we've now reached a stage where the current Labour government is also very much to blame. Namely, for the vast number of immigrants it has shepherded into the country over the last year or so. About half a million people coming in, spending money and driving up inflation. And also making the housing crisis worse. That piece of homespun inflation is directly the fault of the Albanese government and they should be taking steps to drastically slash immigration over the next few years. Not to mention cutting the fuel excise tax, which, while there is debate as to whether that would be inflationary or not, would likely just make it easier on people's credit cards at the pump. But rather than doing one or both of these things, Labor has, of course, resorted to tokenism. We saw this in question time on Monday when Minister for Agriculture, Fisheries and Forestry, Senator Murray Watt, revealed he was calling on supermarkets in the lead-up to Christmas to freeze the price of, wait for it, Christmas ham. And that's why today I've called on the big supermarket chains to freeze the price of Christmas hams. The traditional ham, I'm surprised that the opposition don't think that's a good idea. Sneering at the idea of freezing the price of Christmas hams. How concerned about cost of living you are. Well, the opposition might be surprised to hear this, but the traditional ham is a staple of any Christmas lunch in Australia. I would have thought you would have known that. It's time for supermarkets to do their part and say one thing we won't put up is the price of a Christmas ham. Guaranteeing a price freeze on ham would allow families to manage their budgets in the weeks leading up to the holiday. And I really would have thought that this is something that the opposition could get behind, but apparently not. It's always politics for them, not caring about the the average Australian citizen who's trying to say... Does Labor really think this kind of tokenism makes them look good in the eyes of the public? Particularly when, to state the bleeding obvious, not all Australians celebrate Christmas. 
Joining me to discuss all of this and more is federal LNP Senator Gerard Rennick. Senator Reddick, it is fantastic to have you here this evening. Have you been well? Uh, I've been very good. Thanks, Daisy. Well, that is fantastic. I'm looking forward to having a chat with you about all of Labor's woes. Now, look, looking at that video of Murray Watt and his, his Christmas ham cost of living relief, uh, he's obviously a bit surprised that there wasn't more applause at this uh, suggestion from the coalition. Uh, how do you think the hardworking Australian families are taking this promise of a price freeze on Christmas ham to fix their cost of living woes? Well, I don't think, uh, judging by the comments on uh, Senator Watts' Twitter feed, that they took it all that well, to be <laughs> honest with you. And it was a bit of a cheap stunt that I think uh, cheapened the serious issues that are out there. Uh, I know in today's Korea Mail up here in Brisbane, uh, you know, they're talking about the number of tent cities that are here in Brisbane, uh, and that's a real concern. I mean, we're not used to seeing that sort of uh, those sort of living conditions uh, here in Australia. Mm. And we certainly don't want Australia turning into the California of the United States or, and, and especially San Francisco, whereby people who are homeless flock to Queensland because of the warmer weather so they don't need as many clothes and, you know, it's easy to sleep out in warmer weather. Mm. Uh, and that's and that's the big risk. And under Anna Palaszczuk and, and Anthony Albanese, that's, that's the way we're heading. Mm, well, it's uh, interesting in terms of Queensland state politics. We, we've seen some calls that are actually really encouraging for David Crisofulli and the, the state LNP. I mean, I know we've got a, a while to go till that Queensland state election, but do, do you think this finally might be the year the LNP can actually take government off Labor again? Well, I hope so. Mm. Uh, it's It's been uh, long overdue. Uh, we've got to win 14 seats. Um you know, if, if, you know, I'd say we'll get to 10 um, without, you know, if, if things stay the way they were, we'd get to 10 without, you know, too much more um, campaigning. But obviously, you know, we've got to get over 14 and ideally we want to get, you know, well over 14. Mm. Uh, but look, I think David Christopher is doing as good a job as we could hope for at this stage. Mm. Normally, I would say, uh, you know, you'd never count your chickens this far out because the labour machine, especially in Queensland, when they turn it on, are very hard to beat. But the only thing I'd say is that they themselves are divided. So a lot of um, Labor um, apparatchiks are not happy with the Premier at the moment. They mm. want her to leave. And I know that when uh, Campbell Newman won power in 2012, a lot of you know Labor unions or unions affiliated with Labor actually turned on Anna Bly because of the privatisation issue. And I think we may see the same thing next year. So whereas normally this far out, I'd say, you know, be very wary. And, and, and we should still be wary. But I, I don't think you're going to see Labor uh, turn out in the same way you have in other years. Mm. Well, I, I certainly hope you're right, Senator, because I'm rightfully sick of Anastasia Palaszczuk and her government, and I've only been living in Queensland a few years. So for the, the longer-term uh, residents who've had Labor on and off, I, I really do feel for you. Now, you've uh, made a, a real uh, stir in the Senate this week, Senator, on the um, issue of government regulation of, of currency. You've been very outspoken on the need for government control and regulation of currency in response to the Digital Assets Market Regulation Bill, and you've warned about the risks involved in a digital currency. Um, tell us, what threat does digital currency present to Australians, in your opinion? Well, there's two threats. One's monetary and one's surveillance. So, you know, as I said in the speech you're referring to, when it comes to the government marching into the bedroom, the family home, the classroom, the doctor's waiting room, the corporate boardroom, I don't want government involved in any of those aspects of our lives. But when it comes to managing uh, currencies, I am of the view that one currency, one country. And that's, mm. you know, if you look at the history of Australia, you know, it was Lachlan Macquarie that introduced Australia's first currency. Uh, we saw what happened in the first, after 17 years of the colony uh, in 1805, there was a significant drought, uh, some harsh conditions, which meant that the foreign currency was repatriated offshore. Uh, there was no currency left onshore and they ended up in the Rum Rebellion. Now, and that literally went the proverbial up. So. Mm. You've got to have good control of your currency, and I'm talking through a financial instrument uh, mechanism here, and that's why I know a lot of you know, listeners might disagree with me, but I hate things like Bitcoin and all of those digital currencies because they are not backed by anything. They are nothing but, you know, digits, bytes on a computer screen, mm. and anyone pulls that plug, it's all over Red Rover. 
Um, now, you know, don't get me wrong, governments have to manage their money properly and we've seen, unfortunately, Australia doesn't really manage its money. It's, it manages interest rates, but it does not manage the volume of credit in the system. Mm. It allows that credit to be determined by foreign banks when Paul Keating relaxed capital controls in 1985 in the name of free markets. Um, all that did was allow foreign banks to flood Australia with foreign debt, which just pushed up the house uh, prices of houses from five times earnings to 12 times earnings. It pushed up. Uh, it allowed many um, foreign companies to come in and buy our infrastructure assets and our farmland. Mm. Um, so I'm very, I'm, and I'm an old-fashioned protectionist. I'm probably the last protectionist left in the Liberal Party, despite <laughs> the Liberal Party being founded by the, um, uh, you know, being a protectionist party originally. And that's, so we don't, just to be clear, we don't believe in free markets for the same reason we don't believe in fairies and bottom of rose garden doesn't exist. Um, what we believe in, it's a risk-reward paradigm. And we believe in protecting the rights of the individuals and families from government overreach. Mm. Now, the best way to get productivity in this country, because our freedoms is the child of affluence, which is the child of productivity, is to actually protect the individual and their families. Because when you get off people's backs, they can actually flourish and they can aspire to do greater things. But when you're bogged down with red tape, green tape, black tape and blue tape, you know, you're, you're basically stifling um, innovation and entrepreneurship and we see that especially in superannuation whereby the stock market and just, you know, entrepreneurs in this day and age, uh, any good ideas, they never get listed on the stock market because, you know, the super funds just kill volatility, hmm. um, which is actually not good, um, as strange as that may seem. So back to, but back to the whole point of the currencies, that is one thing I think the government should regulate um, and I don't believe in any of those sort of as a financial instrument at least. And I don't believe in any of these sort of unauthorised currencies because this idea that Bitcoin has a certain and limited amount of expansion, that's great. But what they're doing is now they're creating all these other digital currencies. And I think there's something like 8,000 digital currencies out there now. Yeah. So, and they're all just running around chasing their tail. Now, the downside of all this is, is that they are now going to take, when you've got paper money, you can't trace paper money you know, when it's, you know, cash itself can't be traced. Yeah. Now, of course, the risk is this, and, and this is where we go, we change from being a financial instrument to a uh, form of control or a surveillance instrument. Now, it's just like the vaccine. The vaccine in itself is a medical product or, you know, and, and some medical products provided they're fit for purpose are very good things, right? Mm. But when you start applying a vaccine, putting a vaccine passport over the top of the vaccine, you get then getting the totalitarian state coming into it now yes. this is where the social credit system uh will be a threat because they're going to use the digital currency as a form of monitoring everything we do in our lives and that is a real danger mm. yes you've called uh the bill a stepping stone to a social license license um do you think that is the actual long-term plan of labor or do you think this is just an episode of of, of willful ignorance by the albanese government well no that was actually andrew Bragg's. Um, private members bill. So oh, he's free trader. Yeah, yeah. And of course, you know, I, I believe my, my free trader colleagues, uh, because, you know, where were they when they introduced mandatory superannuation? Where were they when they introduced the renewable energy target? Uh, where were they when they introduced vaccine mandates? I mean, a lot of these free trading types will talk free traders when it comes, you know, free trade when it comes to idealism, but when it actually comes to, you know, standing up for your values, they run a mile. Um, so, mm. and same with this Bitcoin, if you technically believe in Bitcoin, you don't want any regulation around it. And I think it's a false economy or, you know, you're making a false promise to the people to think that you can actually regulate Bitcoin or any of these things. Now, you're right, what Andrew Braid was just trying, he wants to legitimise this whole, you know, form of currency uh, because his, you know, the people he talks to in Sydney are all these white-collar spivs who basically play with other people's money uh, when they living, sorry, I, 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 I have the greatest respect for the North Shore. Don't get me wrong, I lived there myself for six years. But you know the types, they, mm. they earn a lot of money playing with other people's money. They live in multi-million dollar mansions um, and they're not really adding value right now. So that's Andrew's, you know, that used to be a part of the, the Liberal Party. Now they've gone teal. Mm -hmm. um, but the irony of it is, is that, you know, that, that is not going to um, – so, so Andrew's purpose was to facilitate this new form of scalping money from the everyday Joe bloke, right? They're mm. coming from a different – they're looking to profiteer. Albanese, however, and this will be next year with the digital ID, will be looking 
Um, and it's not just, to be fair, I don't even think Albanese probably even understands it. He probably doesn't give it a second thought. But the, the Labor Party machine, which is instinctively command and control, mm. uh, will see digital currency as a way to control people's, you know, CO2 emissions, whether or not they're getting vaccines, whether or not, you know, they're spending money or doing whatever they're doing, they will see that as an opportunity for greater surveillance. Oh God, it's 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 a fr- it's a frightening time, isn't it? And yes, sorry, apologise for apologies for misspeaking. Of course, it was Andrew <laughs> Andrew Prague's members bill. Yeah, it's that's been, all right. It's been yeah. a long it's been a very long day. Um, but yes, it, it, it is absolutely, I think, something that would appeal to Labor as well, but for different reasons because they are so yeah. intent, it seems, on um, controlling everything we do. I mean, we see it with their misinformation bill, you know, from, from the internet, you know, the, the, all, all of that kind of stuff. Um, now, can you explain to us how a tangible currency fuels economic growth uh, versus a digital currency? Why would well, you know better having tangible currency for the betterment of the country? Okay, so now what we need so, so currency is a form of credit. What's mm. what's productive for the economy is what you call secured credit versus unsecured credit. So MMT, where they talk about modern monetary theory, that is unsecured credit. That is where they're going to print money and give it to you to spend. Now, we actually did that in the COVID pandemic when the RBA printed $300 billion to pay people to stay at home and get brainwashed by the premiers by the hour. Um, yeah, no, I kid you not. And, and yet again, where were our free market friends who said you can't print money out of thin air? Now, exactly. what I believe in is that, so you've got a balance sheet. On the left-hand side, you've got an asset that's now either going to be um, represented on the right-hand side by debt or equity. So what you need to do is to make sure that we secure any form of volume control. So, you know, when we expand the volume of credit in the system, if we've got, say, an asset of 20 million people, like we had in the year 2000, and we've now expanded that asset to 26 million people, we have to expand the credit in the system, right? That's that's just a fact of life. Now, the 1937 Banking Royal Commission quite rightly said, and it was the only true Royal Commission, the one just recently was due to corruption in banking, said if you want to, the central bank should be responsible for the volume of credit in the system. That means our central bank, not a foreign central bank. So we can either expand the credit through foreign debt or domestic equity, mm. right? That now, if you're going to do it responsibly, you should actually issue any new credit against an asset. So if you're going to issue credit out of thin air, which is, you know, credit is an arbitrary construct, um, you need to match it against an asset that comes out of thin air. Now, on assets that come out of thin air are our rainfall, our sunlight, our soil, and as the words of our national anthem says, it's wealth for toil. Yes. So you take all those four ingredients and you can build a dam, you can build a power station, you can build a road, you can build a tunnel, you can build a port, you can build an airport, and you can build telecommunications. Those seven sovereign assets are the only thing that you should issue credit against, right? That's mm-hmm. how, and by building more dams, more power stations, better roads, better ports, you can increase the productivity of the country. So mm-hmm. once you do that, that's the only government intervention you should have. But once you let, and then you sell that water to the farmers or you sell the electricity to the business, you, but by increasing, you know, the pet number of power stations, increasing the number of dams, you're increasing supply, you're pushing down the price of these goods, right? Yes. So, and this is another way to fight inflation by productivity rather than what the RBA is doing, which is they're imposing austerity, where they're basically jacking up interest rates um, and hurting the the people who can least afford it the most. Mm, oh, very much um, so. Yeah. So what they're doing is actually reducing demand rather than increasing supply. Um, mm. And if we're going to have more people coming to this country, we've actually got to expand the, you know, the size of the economy, not shrink it. Mm. Um, and that's why we've got to look at quantitative easing. It's been given a bad name over the years by the, by the free traders yet again, but yet they say nothing when the foreign banks come in here and buy up all our assets. And, and of course, ironically, the other people have bought up all those infrastructure assets with the superannuation funds. So, yet again, now, when infrastructure assets that don't are natural monopolies, there's no downside risk, right? Te- yeah. Well, the, the, the risk is, you know, once you control a monopoly, it's, it's, you can control pricing, right? So you want genuine competition. So with those seven sovereign assets that I mentioned, that's what we should. We really need an infrastructure bank. Now, mm-hmm. the, and what that means is, is that the federal government uh, sets up an infrastructure bank owned by the federal government. It then lends back to the federal government or the state government say, for 100 years at 1%, the state government then pay, repays that loan over 100 years from the profits from the dam, the profits from the power station, mm-hmm. and then the infrastructure bank 
then make whatever that interest is, is its profits. They pay it back to the federal government as retained earnings. Or what you could do, and this is what Robert Menzies did in 1959, is the profits from that infrastructure bank could then be used as a development bank mm. to lend out to ca- uh, councils and things like that. Not in a, in a form of expanding in the volume of credit, but mm. just you know enabling uh, councils and other things on those smaller type community services and just giving them cheap finance. And, and another good example was you could set up a state government insurance office. So I don't know if you've looked at, you know, got an insurance bill recently, but most insurance bills are up by 20 or 30%. Yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah, 40 to 50% of insurance costs now are reinsurance costs from overseas. So, you know, you'll pay SGIO or whoever it is, um, QBE, your insurance mm. bill, half that goes back off overseas to reinsure. Yes. Instead of instead of doing that, if the federal government just had its own GIO, which is what we used to do, yeah. uh, the state governments had their own GIO, you could take 40% off the costs of reinsurance straight away. Oh, gosh. Because, yeah, yeah. yeah. You could literally half insurance. Now, that's, imagine that's what incredible. that would, yeah, yeah, that, that, would, that would be so um, helpful um, at the moment rather than this austerity that the RBA has has been um, hurting Australians with. I don't know how, I, I don't have children yet, but I, I don't know how anyone yeah. who has children and is on a middle income is, is and owns a house is feeding their families at the moment. Um, Senator Rennick, uh, thank you so much for this this fascinating analysis. It is it is so great to know that you you are there in the Senate um, advocating for, for this perspective um, and providing this kind of of balance and have a wonderful Christmas and I would love to see you again on my show in 2024. Thanks very much, Daisy, and Merry Christmas to you and your listeners as well. Well, that's all we've got time for tonight on the Daisy Cousins Show. I do hope you all enjoyed the program as much as I enjoyed presenting it. Thank you so much to both of my guests and to everyone who makes this show possible. Good night, world. I'll see you next week.